0: I just have a zest for life, so when I was a kid, I used to uh, read poetry, write poetry, fix things, uh, do a lot of reading on mechanics, electronics.
1: On this episode, we sit down with Brian Mazar, the Managing Director and CEO of American Fortune Merger and Acquisition Consulting. Brian has a true zest for life and shares his secrets on advising business owners through all aspects of a business sale. I really enjoyed learning about Brian's quote unquote commitment to excellence and his love for finding joy in the little things. Let's dive in.
2: Well, we really appreciate you coming on the How to Business Show. We we talked to industry experts, business owners, and and you're two of those. And we're excited to learn more about you and learn more of your history. So I guess to get started, could you tell us a little bit about what you were
0: doing in the beginning of your professional career? All right. The beginning of the professional career. I need to back up a little bit. Just okay. Because I uh, I indicated earlier that I had a difficulty choosing. All I knew is I, I wanted to serve the world. I wanted to serve people. I wanted to serve with excellence, not just mediocrity. So uh, I started my undergraduate in um, electrical engineering. I actually wanted electronics. I loved electronics more. However, as I came into the program, I think a year and a half, uh, I realized that engineering would put me in a box Mm -hmm. and it would drive me crazy. So Uh, I changed my major to industrial management, which was a combination of business classes, economics, um, more engineering classes. It prepared for manufacturing companies, which I'm from Detroit, so uh, that made a lot of sense for me. So, um, graduated, and I, I, uh, first series of of jobs worked for four, four different companies were all related to materials management and materials management um, included the major responsibilities for that were oversight of suppliers so some of my suppliers were very large companies sometimes smaller and when I say smaller that could they could be you know 50 million for, uh, up to 11 billion dollar companies so my job was to oversee those suppliers from delivery contracts to quality control to all of the, to make sure that supplies kept coming. We're talking about production here in Detroit. The line couldn't stop, Uh, everything had to be on time. So uh, most of my work for the companies related to what's called materials management. And I think most people will will have an idea a little deeper so I, I don't have to explain.
2: Well, we're, so when you're when you're doing that, you mentioned you worked for four different companies. Were right. were they employing you, or were you working as a contractor?
0: No, they. I was employed. Okay. Uh, back then, I independent contractors were not even used, and I'm not that old. But I, I came into the industry after graduating um, in 1979. So, independent contractors were not around, and you were an employee.
2: Interesting. So you're, you're from Detroit originally. What brought you to Louisville?
0: Well, uh, Detroit was too big, uh, too cold, uh, too gloomy. When it's gloomy there and when they say it's going to be cloudy, it's going to be cloudy. <laughs> uh, so I um, didn't want to move too far away. I had a family by then, uh, two children, a wife, and I wanted to move somewhere uh, where I wouldn't be too far But warmer and a smaller city so I looked at a lot of different cities in the south and Lexington and Louisville kept coming up and coming up so I checked the weather I checked the the patterns and how much sunshine all those kind of things now with that the move was prompted by I wanted to go into my own business so uh, it, it was a long process that I thought about. Um, in the meantime, I picked up an MBA that I that was kind of to help me not only in my work environment, working for companies, but even more specifically as preparation for business ownership. So I went through a lot of different things: what I had skills in, what I liked. So manufacturing kept coming up. However. As I um, considered the fact that I'm going to be owned by the banks all the time, if I have a bad quarter, I could be toast. So I realized as much as I love, it's it's just uh, very uh, risky. And uh, so I, I looked at service businesses. Again, I looked at what my skills were, what my experiences were, and I thought, well, a lot of my experience could lend itself to merger and acquisition work or business brokerage um so connected the dots i, I looked at a group called sunbelt business brokers and uh, bought uh, the uh, franchise location for louisville and lexington of course they went undeveloped so i had to grow the business and uh that's it was a combination of things but uh it's Kentucky. I love it. And uh, even though I'm not from Kentucky, I think I have a lot of rights because of the fact that I love Kentucky.
2: That's awesome. So. Yeah. We're always proud to hear when people love, we're, we're all Louisville natives, So yes. we're, we're we are familiar with the, the brain drain of Louisville. A lot of, you know, talented people end up leaving Louisville to go to Nashville and stuff. So we're always proud when someone else is proud of Louisville. And yes, absolutely. we love to welcome any locals, whether they're natives or not. And um, that's really interesting. So, you you essentially a lot of our guests we talk about a common theme is that leap from being in the corporate world, being right. an employee and then jumping into being your own business owner. What how long did that take for you? Was it was it drawn out over a course of like 5 years or was it quicker than that? You're
0: talking about the the like
2: getting into business brokerage and starting your own business.
0: How long did preparation, it take? The yes. leaving what we would call the big nipple <laughs> uh, and uh, moving on on your own which you know is when you're not romanticizing it when you're being realistic you look at the fact that uh, you have a mortgage to pay you have children you have a wife uh yeah you have a lot of obligations so business is is definitely risky so i planned virtually for about at least three or four years because actually uh, we bought property in 1995 to build a home in, in louisville the east end so that process, and then we, I moved and started the business. Uh, it was exactly uh, September of 1998, and so about three, three and a half years of just really discerning, looking at my skills, um, changing companies uh, to gain more experience so I could have a broader experience even more in preparation for, uh the merger and acquisition and uh, business brokerage. So probably once I discerned all these, it was probably about a year prior to uh, making that decision that, that I started looking at business brokerage, merger and acquisitions.
2: And then how did you discover business brokerage and merger? And I know you, you mentioned that you were... Looking at your skill set, but ultimately, did you just find it on the internet, or did you have a mentor of sorts? Who?
0: No, I, I didn't have a mentor. I realized that you know, businesses change hands, so I started going that route of of okay, how does that happen? Who, who's who does it? And unfortunately, as I started to look, I was very very disappointed. I'm still disappointed to this day that. Business brokerage, even in mergers and acquisitions, and we're talking about businesses anywhere from uh, revenue a uh, million to uh, about a hundred million, and especially the lower ends where, where it is covered by business brokerage, and I, I, I have to be very sensitive here to, to business brokers out there because there's a lot of good ones out there. Unfortunately, the way I was taught through Sunbelt, and I'm not afraid to say that, uh, was very, it's sell. Sell to the seller, sell to the buyer, and don't add value, don't worry about adding value. And it's very disappointing. And there's no um, licensing, there's, there are no restrictions. So you can imagine what happens. There's no barrier to entry. So anyone who thinks that they can do this can enter and nobody's going to stop them, which is very disappointing and uh, many of us have been trying to change that. When you enter into much larger deals where you're looking at 100 million or more, then you're you're looking from a different perspective. Series seven is is the license you, you obtain because you're dealing with mostly. Uh, securities, which in turn, are, in a sense, are uh, stock sales versus smaller businesses, most of the time, they're asset sales. So yeah, that uh, makes sense. Hopefully I've answered your question. <laughs> no, that that, that
2: makes perfect sense. And I'm glad you touched on one one thing in real estate, You're, I'm sure you're familiar, you do have to get a license, yes. but it doesn't pref- prevent you know, new real estate agents, they're hungry for listings. So people come with their house and they say, what do you want for your house? Oh, I can sell it for that price. And they get the listing, they put it on the market, and then it never sells. And I could see that same problem just being exponentially greater with business brokers. You just have a bunch of guys collecting trophies, essentially, and slapping on a price. And that doesn't really do justice
0: for anyone. And just, you know, a tip of the iceberg, you know, you look at a home or even if if commercial real estate, it is a asset, you can put, get yes. your hands around it, you can look at if it's being leased out, you see kind a lease it is and so forth. You can have inspections, uh, environmental, all those kind of things. So th- you, the variables or the, the things you look at are very limited. In business, you have customers, concentration of customers or, or business with customers. Employees, you have of uh, the products and the, the different kind of products, you have so many variables that anyone who's going to then facilitate the sale of a business needs to be very uh, experienced and, and very, uh, has a, have a lot of expertise to be able to facilitate all of that, understand it, and bring a lot of value through the whole process.
2: So what, what does your process look like when you're bringing on a business for sale? What is that? I guess for real estate, we have listing appointments. They take an hour or two and you usually know at the end of that, right. if you've got the listing or not, what does it right. look like in business? Yeah.
0: brokerage? Very different. So the process one, we, we stand we stand on our head, turn blue and everything. We try to get people to look at exit planning even a year before or ideally it would be two or three years. Uh, not that we do exit planning, it's because it brings very good results. It, it would help us, allow us to go in, identify a lot of shortcomings, uh, have them corrected, and we would help the client with, with some of the corrections. There's so many different things. As an example, you have the business has family. That has to change because it poses a risk to the buyer. Uh, if there's a concentration of business with uh, one customer that represents more than 20%, that's an issue. Uh, I had one uh, potential client who was in uh, environmental business, very profitable, and when I was interviewing him in, in the beginning, I said, what's your concentration of business with one customer or two? He said, 90%. I said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you because to take that business to the market, most sellers, uh, buyers would just say, look, you know, they, you have a relationship with them, we come in, they may not like us, for whatever reason, they they stopped doing business with us and we just paid a lot of money for, for something. So, so there's just a lot of those kind of variables that, that if a business owner gives, somebody like us or anybody else so they would work time to prepare. Not to paint the pig for the market, but truly bring value and, and that in, 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 in terms of uh, correcting things. That improves the value and improves the marketability of that business. Yeah, that's great. Um, so very quickly, because I, uh, I may be talking a little too much at a no, time. No, you're but, perfectly fine. Um, so you asked me how long. So most mm-hmm. of the time, unfortunately, business owners decide they want they go on a vacation, or they just have one of these moments where they go, "I want to retire." It, it doesn't usually mean that they come into us and they want to put it on the market that month or the next month. It just means they've decided to, to sell. And we test for that to make sure that it's not, uh, they're not having a bad month or, or a bad year or, or whatever else is going in their personal life. We want to make sure they really are focused. We challenge that actually for their own good to make sure that they don't, as it is, they will have always regrets or, or they're going to have a difficult time letting go because it's their baby. They love it. They they grew it. And even though they're very motivated to sell, every one of them, virtually when it um, comes closer, month or two months to the closing, and I have those chats before that, that this is going to happen, they want to chat with me. And then I become a counselor, just giving them, Look, it's going to be okay. This is very typical, and, you know, I don't manipulate them. I mean, if they really want to stop the process, we'll do it. Uh, but uh, if they're ready and we go through all these things to t- challenge them, uh, it will take about two or three months, um, most, sometimes maybe even of a month. If they have everything organized, let's say if we, uh, we ask for monthly financials, uh, they have them. They have, um, if they have audited financials, wow. Uh, if they have processes and procedures in place and they have um, uh, employee manuals and, and those kind of things in place, then virtually it could be a month uh, of, of our, our due diligence on the business as well as the one thing that I insist on is a business valuation. whether we perform the business valuation or a third party performs the valuation, but it needs to be someone who's not going to tell them what they need to hear. Yes, I always tell a client, you're going to uh, you're going to get what you should get. In other words, we're looking at value from market perspective. Obviously, values vary because depending on your when you're selling a business, you should know who your ideal audience of buyers is. If that business is able to be sold to strategic buyers, well strategic buyers will see a higher value because of the synergies and, and so forth and the risk that they're willing to take. Financial buyers don't, uh, or we call them the bottom feeders. And likewise, um, uh, sometimes individuals who maybe own businesses before uh, are don't see the greatest value and competitors competitors obviously will downplay the value um, so so in other words it could be a month and if everything is so well and working with a client right now where it's like everything that I ask and the due diligence page there's there's, about um, hundred items on it, and they've been providing me boom, boom. So that's awesome. That's yeah, great. That's unusual, and it's, oh, it's it's great to have those clients.
2: Yeah, I remember reading a statistic saying that uh, like eight out of ten businesses on the market do not sell. It was a it was a statistic by Forbes. But what it sounds like is you're you're only bringing on that twenty yes. percent. You're not even wasting your time yes. with people who don't have it together. But do you help them get it together too?
0: Yes, okay. I, and that's where exit planning comes in. And unfortunately, some of them don't want to wait, and I said, especially if the profitability is in there. Uh, obviously, values are all about uh, profits, and we calculate for EBITDA. I don't know if you want me to explain EBITDA. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're yeah. welcome to explain it. Yeah, so it's earnings before taxes, depreciation, amortization. Did I forget anything? No. Nope. Um in that EBITDA, and uh, then we look at that number. That's in a sense total value coming in to the owner or owners, and then we start working through that in terms of valuation, different methods that we, we utilize. So, uh, so revenue has nothing to do with it uh, in terms of revenue uh, values. But in fact, some people still look at it. It's it's meaningless because. How would anyone even begin to try to buy a business if it's the last two years, it's not been profitable at all. Why it's, even though it may have goodwill, buyers will not buy those businesses. So in other words, there's a lot of people out there hoping that maybe they'll find a, excuse me, a sucker uh, by taking businesses that, that don't qualify. We don't take businesses. We've, we feel that can't be sold, we just don't. So all of our businesses are going to be sold. It's a matter of how long it will take. Um, That determines on the type of industry the business is in. Uh, For instance, manufacturing, a lot of demand. Software companies, yes. Healthcare, medical, yes. Uh, 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 Recession-proof industries or businesses which, you know, run off a long list, those businesses um, sell. And um, with that, I've kind of over the years being in the business kind of learned that um, on our own, just trends, um, one buyer activity is the strongest. So I share that with my clients always. And that's going to be middle of January through about middle of June. I call that 100%. Buy activity is the strongest. And it drops uh, middle of June f- uh, up to uh, well, the week after Labor Day. It's uh, varies; it could be sixty-five percent, seventy percent by activity. It makes sense. People are vacationing; they're in a different mode. You know, companies when you look at what they're doing, if they're looking at acquisitions. You know, everyone typically does planning at the beginning of the year, so with that may come the idea that we've been growing organically, but we're limited now. So let's look at acquisitions, and normally those plans would be developed, you know, beginning of the year. That that's why it makes sense. So there would be um, buy activity be strong. Then I talked about. Summer and then after Labor Day up to about a one week to Thanksgiving, it's maybe about eighty-five uh, percent activity. and Then starting a few days or so or a week before Thanksgiving through the first week of January, it's about fifty percent activity. Makes Ma- sense because makes people are on the holidays, uh, companies are different mood. I mean, it's it's just. Activities really down unless there's a deal in the making. Then very often, both the seller and buyer are really motivated to sell. Maybe by the end of the year for for tax purposes or capital gains is about to be go up the next year or so. So there's various you know reasons, but so sometimes we've been very busy at the end of the year trying to make things happen.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, in in real estate, and I'm going to keep coming back to real estate because all of our backgrounds are in real estate, and it's a good way to compare. But are in business brokerage, will you have two agents, or will you just have one agent? And
0: and are you do you represent more sellers or more buyers? Uh, most of the time, it's self side services, and that would be about uh, dividing up the work because I, I do personally, I do a lot of valuation work, so. In terms of uh, revenue, would be unfair, but in terms of activity or time, probably sixty-five percent uh, of the efforts are to sell-side services. About ten percent are for maybe it's a little less for buy-side services, where a either an individual or a company. Uh, hires us to perform all of the due diligence of business valuation and facilitate the acquisition. Um, so that property definitely is less than 10%. So what does that leave us? If I said uh, 65, that I say? And then
2: 10% so you're at 75?
0: Yeah, so the balance is tw- 25% or so, especially of my time, is devoted to valuations. Interesting
1: so besides financials when you're looking and doing this valuation work you talked about you know customer concentration owner dependency what are some of the objective measures you're looking at outside of the p l and balance sheet when you do a valuation very
0: good question uh, and you're referring against to valuing that business mm-hmm. yes yeah, so There's many more variables. I just mentioned a few of family, concentration of business. Um, uh, If it's a minority business, it has some impact. Um, If the owner, and this is common, even I've come across 10, $15 million uh, revenue companies, who spend the owner is still the business. They're a micromanager, and that lowers the value. So, in other words, we're, when we're developing capitalization rates to calculate risks and so forth, uh, that uh, issue poses a big problem because they are the business, and uh, so the buyer will put someone in place uh, to replace that owner, but that owner maybe was a founder of that business. They have a lot of things in their head. Even if they have some halfway decent processes and so forth, that's going to be a a, a reduction of value indirectly. So
2: would you advise for, for a business owner who is you know, a lot of business owners, they have to be involved in their business. But if they want to start thinking about selling, they need to start thinking about how they separate
0: the business from them as the individuals. Yes, and uh, it's, you know, that's why it would be great if they could do reading, most of them, because there's a lot of good content out there that many of, uh, of us have written that's out there, and then find out what is, what is how our businesses are valued what buyers look at, what scares them, what they like and, and so forth. And then even on their own, if they were to do read, um, they would figure things out and, and start making changes. And one thing as difficult as it is, because business owners are so, you can't separate the business from them and vice versa. But when they're planning their two or three years out, four years out, it's to your point, it would, it would be absolutely uh, beneficial for them to um, have someone come in or start being a micromanager or give more responsibilities to other employees so that then the buyer and, and people like us who are doing the due diligence on the business, we could see that, yes, there are other people They can go on vacation. For instance, you know some of the best businesses that I can tell very quickly from that perspective is I ask the owner how many vacations do you take a year, and sometimes I "I can't get away. Oh boy, you've got a problem, and I have a problem now because (laughs) uh, you you know you're you're irreplaceable. But uh, often enough, I have a person who says I take about six weeks vacations per year yes we have a good beginning here because that means that business <laughs> operates well without them and uh, so uh, all these kind of variables that that really impact the value uh, of a business for instance you know to your point you were saying financials yes they're key uh, we utilize a business valuation questionnaire it's probably about uh, nine pages has uh, i don't know Sixty questions, and uh, where we ask our clients to kind of describe how the business is operated, tell us about the tenure of the employees, um, uh, you know how things evolved, how, what what where they're going. If they have a you know a business plan, we collect that. If they have a marketing plan, we collect that. We because that all helps shape value of the business. That, that's what I call the, the push and pull uh, on the value. All these variables have significant impact because when buyers start doing due diligence, they look for those. Uh, and most buyers are very sophisticated. They will actually even hire experts who do uh, evaluate, uh, uh, due diligence. And it's not unreasonable for them to do a four or five month six-month due diligence. However, while they're doing due diligence, people like us also know that they are trying to negotiate at whatever, and no business is perfect. It, 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 It will have some issues. So they use that, yes, to generally look for mines and so forth, but they also will utilize that due diligence to start Going back to us and saying we have an issue, we have an issue here, expecting that that signed letter of intent that has you know hardly uh, very well negotiated uh, price terms and other terms and so forth, earnouts uh, and those kind of things. All of a sudden, they start diminishing, you know, and um, so, but but it's, so our job is to understand all of that having our clients prepare for that. Uh, one of the things that I always tell my client, if you lie to me once, we're, gonna, we're done. Because that I, we have a reputation to protect and truth will come out in that due diligence. When I do it, if I miss it somehow and the buyer finds that shame on me, but it's not gonna be pretty because uh, we want full transparency. Uh, on, uh, on everything we do and we expect our clients to, to do likewise. So. Yeah, it,
2: it sounds like you're you if we were to compare you to any other profession, you'd be most like a lawyer in terms of if your client lies to you, the case falls apart right. and you can't defend them that's right. and their value. That, that's super interesting to think about. It, how often when you're working with a business owner, is that an issue? Do you have a lot of people who come and, and maybe try to fib their way it, through
0: the process? it was common up until from 1998 when i started the business we had about typically 14 15 people two offices we did nothing but retail retail yes there there are a lot of good people absolutely and i have i develop a very high respect for good people in in even in retail businesses because being an mba being in the corporate world I was cocky, I, you know, there's a lot of pride that they really don't know what they're doing, they they don't have the education, they don't have the experience. Many, many of them proved to me that, no, I had an MBA, but I have a lot to learn about business, about the reality of business. So, um, So many were really trustworthy, they treated their employees and customers. However, yes, there are quite a few that, unfortunately, um, early on, uh, you you could see that, for instance, they went reporting uh, all the cash. And I would tell them, look, I, I can't help you with that. And they insisted that somehow that needs to be communicated to the buyer. And I said, I, I won't.
2: Tax fraud? You want me to tell yes, you? Yes, <laughs> absolutely.
0: I, I said you've already been paid because you've the years that you didn't pay taxes on on that cash. Um, so it's been a nice ride. Don't expect to have it continue with a, with a buyer. Um, so, it, in bigger businesses, uh, we're talking about you know B two B, whether they be a million to two million up to uh you find more transparency, you more find maybe I wouldn't call it honesty, but because they have an organization, they have people that uh, people would report things on the owner or so so even if they weren't that honest, in a sense the fact that they had a larger organization um, made them more honest. so, In bigger businesses, we we don't seem to have the issues that that, uh, we did in the retail. We very very often say, we we can't help you, or you've um, midway, uh, you know, we have a lot of buyers, and they tell us, uh, all of a sudden I find out from the the client that something major, and I said, stop, we're done here. You know, and I apologize to the buyers and felt very... Embarrassed because uh, you know we it was on our call, and, and you just
2: wish you had discovered it sooner. Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's an important note that the truth always comes out, yes. and <clears throat> you can do your best during due diligence to find that. Um, and and you've talked a lot about your due diligence process right. pre taking a business to yes. market, and you talked a little bit about the yeah. LOI once you're negotiating with a buyer. But I'm curious. What is your process from getting a business from that due diligence point to actually
0: locating and getting an LOI on their business? How do you go about finding? Oh orders? the fun begins. Yes, indeed. Uh, and I, I, I really mean that. it's, it's, it's an adventure. So um, we're ready. The client signed an engagement agreement. We have a valuation report in place and we have all the info that we could probably want. So we're ready to, to go to market. So in businesses that are usually, you know, 2 million at least to about, we usually work in the in terms of revenue, 2 million to about 30 million uh, revenue businesses. So, uh, so we would market it on approximately, let's see, six websites, including our own. Some are proprietary, we're The buyers have to be accredited and registered uh, on those platforms. Um, So maybe I should say this. So we have three ways of of, uh, locating attracting buyers. One, we have a database that we um, have of serious buyers who demonstrated that they're in acquisition mode and they gave us a copy, which is pretty standard, one-pager of what they're looking for. They might be looking at several industries. They might be looking at certain geographic areas. And and very often, they don't talk about revenue, although they do. They're very interested in EBITDA, that it have a EBITDA of a million, if I could say it once, that it's, it's it repeats itself. It's, Minimum one million EBITDA to let's say up or they might say up to ten million because then they know that it's it's going to be an expensive acquisition. Um, so we go to that uh, those files and, and very often we can find prospective buyers in there. And I say prospective, I mean because there's a long way You know, they they might have an interest. They've defined what they want and all those kind of things. It still doesn't make them a buyer. It makes them a suspect kind of (laughs) in a sense until we go through our process. So uh, while we're talking about marketing, we might as well uh, finish it. So the second way is, you know, we advertise on six websites. The third way is we create a uh, target list of uh, prospective buyers. Our clients are instrumental in helping us with that. Usually, we have a pretty good idea who, which companies to go to, and or sometimes crossover industries that might have an interest. And then we simply reach out to them. However, in all cases, uh, the buyer needs to sign non-disclosure. But that is important. But more important is we have them complete a buyer profile which we're asking for financial information, and we say, you ha- you're gonna have to prove this. So you're signing this document that you said you had so much in liquid liquidity in, in the bank or, or uh, any other forms of liquid sources and other investments and so forth uh, that you're going to have to prove. Uh, with individuals, we ask for a resume. Uh, For companies that are private, we ask, we look at their website, we look at, you know, we ask them, have you made acquisitions before? So we really scrutinize them um, well to make sure that if we start releasing information to them, and the first most important one is, what is the name of the company that we're talking about? We're pretty sure that it's not an employee. Well, not pretty sure, we're, we're very sure, because uh, you know uh, we'll even check with our, with our client on certain, say, uh, we have some suspicions on this. You know, you know that company or that person, because competitors as well. So we are absolutely sure that it's not an employee, it's not a competitor. Um, or somebody's uncle trying to, <laughs> all those kind of things, because they won't go through all the hoops that we ask them to go through. So if if it everything looks good, then we, well, I believe in in portioning information out, and so one of the first things they will receive is a uh, offering memorandum or SIM as it's called. And the offering memorandum is typically anywhere from 12 to 20 pages long, and it provides highlights you know, of revenue, uh, so not detailed revenues, EBDOT, uh, for past number of years, projections. It uh, talks a little bit more about um, customers and customer concentration and those kind of things to allow them to see um, basic information that would be helpful to, to, for them to see if they wanna move forward on this, if this is a, uh, a fit. Um, if it is a, uh, a fit, and of course we're talking to them too, so we can tell how what questions they're asking, if, if, if it makes a fit or not. If it makes a fit, then we go on uh, they usually have a lot of questions. We send them certain documents. Notice I have not shared the financials with them because, again, even though we're pretty sure that they're genuine, we hold that till, till later, until actually we our process such that um, we answer a lot of questions and have discussions with them. Then after that, we have a seller-buyer conference call that we facilitate. Uh, it allows them to ask more detailed questions. Um, the seller and the buyer obtain a feel for each other, uh, and I look very carefully for personality traits, for um, uh, culture, what kind of culture do I have on, on my sell side, what culture do I see on, on the you know, interested party side. Because if the cultures are at odds, it's not going to work or if the um, personalities, if I, if I could tell they don't quite like each other, somebody doesn't like the other, because I always have conversations with each one of them after that call, but I listen very carefully. And, and through that, I can tell where we're going with this. If if, it's, if, if they could work together and there's a lot of common ground and things like that. So... After that, if if you know everyone checks out fine, then I would share the detailed financials with them, and then uh, they perform pre due diligence before the LOI. Uh, they will ask additional questions, so they will ask for like, in addition to financials and tax returns, um, they look at you know projections, and if I don't have those already. Okay, projections. How are you going to, what do you have to prove that these uh, things are going to happen? So, uh, prior to that, I have my client already prepare that and I drill them to make sure that, okay, uh, it's believable. And here's why it's believable because this customer is being on a line or something or whatever, and then you have a new contract that's coming on. So, they do all, the, the buyers do all this due diligence and then they submit a letter of intent and the letter of intent can be interesting obviously most of them are non-binding but still my client goes kind of haywire on on certain things I said look this is a non-binding letter of intent there's only a few items this is just that's that's start talking let's agree on things uh, price basic terms earnouts, and those kind of things um, and, uh, and uh, so i would say uh, 70 at that stage probably about 60 percent of the lois that are submitted if they make sense to me and the, the numbers are good because otherwise I negotiate negotiate and uh, of course you know negotiations to me start the minute i start talking to the buyers because there is some posturing involved there there i listen i you know, for weaknesses and i don't manipulate people but i love negotiating and i'm a very good negotiator i believe so i have i have fun but never to do it um, with lies or or dishonesty but just good uh Proper tactics and, and using time as an ally, all those kind of things. So, so if it becomes signed, uh, then the game begins because then they do from several months to six months due diligence, and and I'm you know usually they want uh, so many days of no shop clause, so you can't shop it anywhere else. You can't advertise it, and I fight that. And I usually win, <laughs> at least you know a good compromise. Because I said, "Look, I we will not accept a letter of intent." You know, anybody else will tell them it's, it's will be truthful with any other prospect that would be interested. It is an LOI. Well, we're not one hundred percent sure if it's going to come to fruition. Um, so, um, so yeah, negotiations you know are constant in a sense and from a typical, or most individuals even realize it's going on uh, because it's so subtle, but yet it's going on. Um, so anyway, they the buyer does a lot of due diligence, then if things look good, because of very often they come back, try to offset pricing on this. They like to piecemeal because it works to their advantage. I would do it the same way when I represent on the buy side. <laughs> but, uh, then we finally come close to a definitive agreement, and we get uh, the, the backbone done. Then we go to the attorneys because you know the attorneys. Uh, I can't practice law, although I sometimes I wish I had a law degree because so I choose attorneys for that that are that represent our side who have M&A experience who demonstrate to me. So some some of them are used over and over again, and we do. Do business in the Midwest, so we uh, do. We only do in Kentucky, maybe ten percent of our business. Okay, twelve, and the rest is Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, some in Texas, California, but more the Midwest, Missouri, and and so forth. So, uh, if I don't have a relationship with m and A M&A attorney, I will develop one uh, because the very uh, critical as opposed to a client saying, well, I, I've had this attorney for years and years and I want to use them. And I said, Well, let's see what you've got. If they, if they don't have experience in merger and acquisitions and transactions like that, I don't want them on a team. And I'll you know dissuade my client from doing that. Uh, so that was kind of a summary in a nutshell. Obviously, uh, culture becomes very important so even as as we're looking at a transition we're looking out and I don't leave the scene because I want to make sure that you know so I'll make a lot of recommendations that work with the buyers even though they're not my client to make sure if they don't and it, it's amazing how you know executives sometimes don't get it if they've never made an acquisition that And then they'll listen to advice, good advice, for instance, don't change anything for six months. Don't fire anyone. Don't don't change anything. You're going to scare employees. You don't want that. And many other things like that. And culture, you know, ahead of time we'll have to decide whose culture is going to, if the cultures are different, uh, if you all of a sudden start, pushing your culture as a buyer uh, too quickly, you could ruin a cash cow. And I remember working for what one, one company in Detroit that we bought a, a cash cow. A year later, we couldn't keep our tentacles off. Three brothers who owned it, they, they kind of stayed on, but all of a sudden, you know, we had to go in and mess up and that cash cow dried up very quickly because A lot of it was cultural that, that, you know, we were not uh, sensitive to. So
2: I think that's a really important note because unlike with real estate, you buy it and worst case scenario. Hopefully, as long as you didn't overpay, you can at least get back what you paid for it by just selling it again. And businesses, you buy a business, you mess it up. It's gone. You're just out of your money.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so, uh, as you know, businesses that, that, are not on the market. They're thriving every day. Uh, you you talk to the the owners or the general manager of a division. It's a constant struggle for them. The employees might not feel it, but otherwise, there's a constant, you know, quarter to quarter. And and if if it's a publicly traded company, for instance, I right now I'm working with a. Um, I'm representing the seller but the buyer is a public company the general manager is absolutely just great and he just indicated to me that they have a it was a consultant that utilized and no they did not utilize he was disgruntled well as a payback he started buying up a lot of stock and he created a circle of other people who joined him, and now they're looking at a, in a sense, it's a proxy war, but uh, it it's mimics a hostile Take takeover. <laughs> so all of a sudden, <laughs> we're negotiating this deal, and then this comes into, so he's pulling his hair out, because he oh he, he thinks, and we believe so too, that the acquisition for them would be excellent uh, acquisition so so
2: you guys had a uh, have an acquisition going on a consultant they utilizes now enacting basically a hostile takeover while you're in a transaction yes oh my gosh so
0: we have LOI but you know it's so we don't know what's going to happen If, if the if that one investor uh again it's a publicly traded company and the people he's rounded off to be on the side, kind of went over and they changed the board of directors. Even my uh, other contact that I've been working with the general manager, he might be taken out of the equation. In other words, X'd out, um, so it may fall apart. Wow. So I mean, it's,
1: it's known business transactions are stickier, there's more yeah. moving parts, that one sounds pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, is there ever a simple business transaction? I mean, how do you just keep it ABC, plain English, right from start to finish? Is there anything smooth
0: about it? Well, it, the, it's because, as I tell my clients, I said, I bring on processes and procedures, a lot of know-how and experience. But the biggest one is problem-solving you learn after 25 years to anticipate problems, to prevent problems, solve them. Uh, so that is got tremendous value in, in terms of uh, making things smoother. Uh, and there are not too many, all of them have some hiccups and where it looks like uh, it's, the deal is going to fall apart uh, after the LOI. Uh, I, I could probably percentage-wise, m- there might be about five-seven percent where everything look just works smoothly. Um, the The buyers play very fair. Um, they're not playing gimmicks. They're, they're not using unethical tactics and so forth. And it's like. You finish and you think, wow, I didn't get a chance to earn my money in a sense the proper way where because you, you want to feel like you, normally you spend a lot of time, a lot of effort. Um, and so those those are the, the freebies that come in. You know?
1: To so go back I mean, to the uh, real estate example, you know, you have a residential transaction and you have an offer and then the buyers and sellers usually go back and forth on closing cost or who's right. going to keep the washer and dryer and whatnot. What are okay. some common negotiation points for a business
0: transaction? Sure. Uh, it will be uh, things around employees um, as far as uh, you know changes that they want to do. And of course, like I said earlier, I said don't make any changes, vacation changes and, and, and things like that. Uh, the um, let's see the biggest one. I was just at tip my tongue uh, that is is tax uh, um, and one of the things that we, we do for our client or if we do buy side is being sensitive how to handle how to reduce taxes for our client. So that's a big one because everybody's all over that and. I usually try to get a jump start on, on that so that you know, he who puts it out first and then says this is the way it's going to be, not quite, but you'd like it to be, uh, has a, uh, a heads up on that. But for instance, most smaller deals are going to be uh, asset sale because um, buyers, even uh, you know, $10, $15 million company, especially if there are assets, uh, quite a few assets, the buyers want to make that transaction asset transaction, which means they're buying everything about the company, the the people and so forth, the customers, except the company itself or the stock of the company. Um, Whereas in the stock uh, acquisition, the buyers would have to do a lot more due diligence Um, because everything passes. If the employee or manager uh, was found later on, there was some sexual or whatever, guess who's responsible for it? The buyer. I mean, uh, I guess from a uh, legal perspective as far as criminal, uh, that's what I meant. Yes, the individual who, but it would be the, the headache of the new owners. Uh, so th- there are you know those kind of things but um, taxes uh, so in that regard most buyers want to perform the asset sale because those um, liabilities do not pass and when there is equipment they can reshap those all over again so if i'm representing the seller I try to negotiate my client to reduce the value of the assets, even though I've told them before how much they're really worth on the marketplace, I will fight to try to put as much value on goodwill to um, to benefit my client because then he will be taxed on the capital gains versus uh, net income. So, uh, so those become pretty. It's it's an elephant in the room in in terms of negotiations. Uh, uh, usually at the end, but you know I tried to bring it up up front early enough where I could have more control over it and and, and to have a benefit to my client. Uh, yeah.
1: So just to summarize that, asset sales are more beneficial to the buyer because there are better tax implications once they acquire those assets yes. and depreciation. Right. Equity sales are more beneficial for the seller. Yes. They pay less in capital gains tax. Yes. But you're saying you can sell the assets. The seller can sell in an asset sale, but attribute more value to the goodwill. Right. That gets treated the same right. as an equity sale would in the yes. capital gains. Yeah.
0: So, and of course, you know, the, the pushback will come if... Mm-hmm. The, from the buyers on, on asset sale because they they want to maximize the value of the equipment. They may they were downplaying the value of it before, challenging the value, but now when it's time to, mm-hmm. to you know, talk just, about taxes everybody reverses roles about what they <laughs> so amazing. um the other thing so uh, in terms of uh, again talking about Where we're representing a seller in this case, the other thing Anna that that we do is calculate the value of the the, because there is personal goodwill and there is enterprise goodwill or company goodwill. So the more so I I do calculations for that, and the more I can um, assign without the IRS, if they were uh, audited, that they wouldn't have an issue with, with. my calculations and how much of it is applied towards uh, personal goodwill. That's another way of reducing taxes. But that's providing that the owner was a founder, he's still the face of the company, and and we can demonstrate that and so forth. All of that determines what percentage will be personal goodwill versus enterprise goodwill. So that's another tax Issue or matter that we're very aware of. How often do when it comes to you know
2: actually paying the money? Is it typically financed, or do I, I picture with the larger companies they may have the cash, but do they still choose to finance? How does that look?
0: Yeah, we've seen and again we're we're handling companies in terms of selling price are going to be anywhere from two million to about thirty million at the most. Most of the time, it's it's really the average probably deal for us in terms of selling price is going to be probably around 8, eight million, 10 million or so. Um, so uh, in those cases, the seller financing is a component. Well, in in most deals, uh, seller financing is a component. And in larger deals, it's replaced normally by, uh, they still like to have a seller financing a note, but earnouts, and those earnouts are usually suggested, you know, in the LOI by the buyer. Um, it can be a good win-win, but it needs to be structured very well. So one of the things that most um, buyers, when they and most of them will put want some uh, earnout portion of, of the sale because they they try to negotiate for a benefit there. However, their uh, earnout is based on income. Well, you could understand, you could start to see what can happen with income because let's say it's a two or three year earnout. During that time, they're going to spend on things, they're going to expense as much as they can on things they need or so uh and find ways to, to minimize the bottom line. So when I represent the seller, it's 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 very quickly say that is a uh point that we we cannot move on. It's going to be based on, on gross revenue earnouts. Um and um, and I win. Because <laughs> yeah. uh and they know it. They they, they know that, uh, and unfortunately, depending what uh, who they're dealing with on the sell side, uh, unfortunately, and again, there's a lot of good people out there, but many people really don't care that much about saving taxes for the client or making a really great deal for the client. It's the commission. So they will forego playing hardball and and many other things it's it's sad but it's human nature
2: yeah and i think i mean we have a lot of listeners who are business owners and it's it's very important to stress just with really anything it's always better to you know pay a little extra maybe but go to someone who is an expert and willing to because like you said there are a lot of sophisticated buyers who can essentially just come in and bully you out of your money and you need someone there to be that lawyer defend your case and, and not an actual lawyer but like a lawyer defend your case for your
0: value so that you're not getting that stripped away from you. as a matter of fact speaking of that a common technique is when they, they they love to come in because they're constantly some of them looking for acquisitions and if they could find a seller or someone you know a company and they speak with the owner they paint the sky or whatever color the seller wants and they um uh and they hope that the seller or the owner of the business doesn't turn around and hire somebody like us or or anybody even for it to represent them because then they could play them very well to their own benefit and uh, and to the point where when they chip away at, at price after you know LOI has been signed, uh, that owner has already been to around the world several times spending that money in their mind and telling their wife we're gonna have all this money coming in and honey I can finally get this kitchen redone or I can find it where you know you whatever they're spending that money already so they've got them hooked so that even if they have to compromise and go from what was a 10 million dollar offer maybe come down to be six million dollar offer very legitimately that they can explain that we found this and we found that which you know we live in an imperfect world none of us are perfect or you're gonna find imperfections and everything so but it's unfortunate but many of them do this and they do it all over again
2: yep and i can see business owners already that you know they're they hear 8 million and then it's 6 million and they're like, well, we already have this vacation plan. We already have this kitchen remodel plan, it's right. better than nothing. Right. And that, that is really sad. I, I, I hate that for those business owners. Yeah, yeah.
0: And it, it happens quite often. We sometimes have a, a call from someone who's midstream and says, we just realize we need somebody like you. I said, well, I'm glad you're calling at least now, but it's going to be a little difficult for me to, come in and uh, assert myself in there, but I don't, uh, I use whatever advantages I have and and you know, get the deal done properly. And bluff if I have to that we're done here if we can't have, uh, and sometimes when you, without telling people that they used, you know, the buyer, the, the seller, in a way where they understand, uh, they have mud on their faces. Um, you, you can get them to to undo a lot of things.
2: Uh, yeah, it could be extremely beneficial. One, because yeah. you 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 can see through their um, their bullshit, so to right. say, and call them out on it, and that's going to
0: embarrass them very yes.
2: quickly. Whereas the the poor seller, they're just right. you know they're just trying to get a, get a business sold. They don't know.
0: And they're all they're concerned because reputable M and A guys, uh, in uh, around the country, talk to each other, and we know uh, who, uh, you know, the word gets around, uh, who, which companies are they're buying out, what what reputations they have. So they're they're afraid of of, of having a bad reputation, especially equity groups. Um, they even though they, they play a lot of games, they, they still, they're not dummies. They care about their reputation, so.
2: Interesting. So with the, I guess a lot of buyers would be private equity firms. Is it common for them to come in as like a bully or for the most part, are most of them pretty nice? How, how does that dynamic work with the private equity buying a smaller, not necessarily a smaller business, but a business that's ran by a, an owner operator? Good question.
0: Because they come in as a, uh Wolf dressed in sheep's clothes. Now, many of them are good people, so. Yes. But, but the approach is, is always taken is, is we're going to do this deal, you're, you're gonna be very happy when we get it done and they start talking about a high price and so forth. So they paint the sky. And so the, the buyer, the seller is dazzled through all of that. So they use a nice guy tactic like, you know, um, they, they just lavish it out. So
2: That's uh, it's so scary to think about.
0: <laughs> but then, you know, there are many of those who are really genuine and they take the approach of not coming out with, you know, uh, being very aggressive and so forth as you know if if you want something done if i walk up to somebody and say you know would you help me people w- will help you so when when someone conveys an attitude of let's let's do this let's do it in a i i know you have needs you have you know what you want and we have our own different directives and so forth. But let's be very transparent and open. Let's help each other accomplish a deal that each one of us can look back and say, I respect that person and I respect you and I would do business with you again. You know, so, so many of them do have that attitude. And it's beautiful to work with. And That one um, company that I mentioned, the public uh, company, uh, the general manager that I'm dealing with, and it's a hundred million dollar company. Just that division, he is that type of a, a buyer where he's genuine. He's just wonderful to work with, and uh, not using any uh, any tactics that are unethical. So,
2: yeah, that's great. I guess for for some of our business owners who are listening, could you give us a, a an idea of red flags maybe in a business owner that instantly when they come in, they want to sell your business. What are those initial red flags you look for that our listeners want to think about before selling their business? Okay,
0: so whose perspective we're trying to teach the listener who we're owns trying to a teach, business? We're
2: trying to teach business owners who, who maybe have never thought about selling their business but know one day they want to, what do they need to think about to make that go successfully?
0: Sure. Well, as I talked about, and I'll mention it again because I think it's so important, it's about exit planning, succession planning, to put that in place. Even if you don't have someone doing it, there's a lot of great material out there that will help you do it on your own and identify how value increases and all those kind of things. But obviously the other one is plan, plan well. Sometimes an illness or death, you don't have time to plan. So that's why even more important it is to have some exit planning so that all of a sudden and, uh, you know, the man owns a business and the wife is not in the business and the man passes away and there's been no exit planning. Unfortunately, one, she doesn't know it, what to do. Uh, there's been no preparation, nothing. So if, if the same thing happened and they were working with someone like us or anybody, and that already knows the company can help bring somebody in to operate that company in the meantime till it's you know sold, those are critical things to, to, to put on. Uh, obviously, the, the worst thing in terms of anybody should do is just all of a sudden, I want to sell, or saying to somebody like us and say, "I just want to dump this business." I I listen to them a little bit more, but I feel like I can't help you because it's if if you have that attitude of just like I don't care who to sell who it sells to, I just want to get rid of it. I'm going to find a lot of landmines, so I, I I'm patient for a while, listen, or so because a business owner who demonstrates in how they talk, how they behave, that it's so important my, my um, uh, employees be protected and that they could they wanna stay on. You know, obviously they don't know it, it's for sale. That my customers are, are gonna, gonna be, they won't change or whoever buys it doesn't start making changes uh, that um, all of those kind of things that somebody's not going to come in and and just dissect the company or, or destroy it. It's their baby. They they, they want to um, pass it on and then have because it, it, they they build a legacy, large or small. That legacy is important to them. So uh, having somebody come in and say, "I uh, uh, I would just want to." Get rid of this, that's a very bad sign. And uh, and also, with that, people who say, This is what I need. Well, I I said, I don't know what, in terms of selling the price, and based on a need, I want to sell this business for this value of my need. And I very quickly tell them, Look, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear and there are such things that are well defined as market values which are not very difficult to um to to value and to learn what your business is is worth so um so i those are i don't know i can
2: and i do want to go back uh, you did mention like you want to be able to separate yourself from the business. I think a lot of business owners, they think, oh, I need to be working every day to drive profits. But if you want to sell that business, you have to make sure that that profit's going to keep driving without you first, correct? Yes. Okay. That that one, I think, is, is a key one. I wish I could scream to every business owner right now right. because I know there's a ton of older people that, you know, they've ran their business for the past 40 years but have never once thought I want to sell my business. Now they do, now that they're in retirement age, but it's still 100% depends on them. Heck, maybe even yeah. the company's their first and last name LLC.
0: Right. And it just won't work. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things as you were speaking, it just um, so many different parts that some business owners, uh, especially those who have uh, equipment, uh, maybe a lot of equipment, and that equipment is very old. It should have been replaced two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten years ago, but they just never replaced it. My uh, recommendation to those clients is that that's going to be a problem—a major problem. You have older equipment, even though if I value the business accordingly. I'll be looking at what the cap X, which is means the capital expenditure that a new buyer will be have to put in, because he looks at the equipment and, and says, this might last a year, year and a half, even though now it's got to be repaired, you know, frequently. So that is the worst thing that um, someone can do in terms of uh, letting equipment age. Uh, I have a trucking company that is um, kind of in that position, and and mostly he was just buying old used equipment. It's coming back to haunt him, mm-hmm. uh, and it's one of those kind of things. So there's some desperation to it. So I, I didn't um, have time. It is what it is, and I'm trying to help him. But uh,
2: so are, we, when people are in uh, maybe a, I don't want to say distress, but they're in a hurry. Are you still willing to help in some cases if it makes sense, or do you always say no? Like with this trucking business?
0: Yeah, I, I've I have a very good heart. Sometimes maybe that affects the brain <laughs> that way. So I love to help people, uh, and but at the same time, realistically, is that I'll tell them, look, if they if they say they've got. Two months or three months, and and they won't be they won't have the money to operate it. I said, it, it's I, I, we can go to the market very quickly, see what happens, but the chances are very low, um, and especially depending on what else is going in, in your business. So, um, so it's uh, a, a business owners shouldn't go out to the market being desperate because that means they waited too long. Um, they just lost a customer that represented 25% of business, and all of a sudden they have hard time paying bills, because that customer was the one that, because obviously when you look at, that's one thing we look at too is, is okay, which customers provide, what margins do you have with what, and And sometimes I'm amazed that with some customers, I look at the margins and they're very low. What they're hoping is that they're going to get more business and more, well, it doesn't seem to happen. So, uh, or they keep uh, product lines that are, they have several product lines where you look at the profit margins on certain product lines, they're very low. My recommendation to them would be, it's been several years where the margins are so low. Dump that product, and all you cling to it. You hope that, uh, but it's not going to happen. Focus on your uh, uh, bread and butter, uh, your core products. stream of cash. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Especially
2: once you cut out those, you know, low margins, then you're increasing your your margins for everything else. It, it only right. makes sense.
1: Brian, jumping back to the career side because you mentioned Sunbelt advisors, but you're now the owner founder of American fortune. Right. What made you make the jump to start your own firm?
0: I'm glad you you are completing that thought because if somebody, you know, is listening to this and they go, okay, he said they left, he was with them. So now it's American fortune. What's going on? So in 2007, I, I became, um, you know, we were franchisees, so we, we had meetings we had. And uh, we wanted to change the company. We want to wanted to groom it to a point where it we could be very proud of. Uh, and that's from uh, you know, the way people were trained, the new franchisees, the expectations of existing franchisees and uh, about things, how they're gonna run their processes and so forth. So many of us were disgruntled. I was probably the worst (laughs) (laughs) because I, I saw that the training was all about don't worry about the value of the business. Don't worry about not having all the information. Just go to the market, find buyers. By the way, tell that buyer uh, we're talking mostly about uh, uh, retail stores. Tell that buyer that look at the, the, the owner's, the seller's car. Uh, Try to boast about the wealth that they have generated or whatever, somehow. And, and I, that was nauseating. And I'm sorry to say ill things of Sunbelt. I've already, when I detached, I, I was interviewed by, and it made national. So I got a call from the gentleman who was still the owner of the franchise, and uh, he he and I had a very good rapport, and he called me. Surprisingly, he didn't yell at me. Let's put it this way. Uh, He listened and so forth, and I said, look, I was just being frank in my interview about the shortcomings, and what I wanted Sunbelt to be, that it had this great potential. Um, so so 2007, I left uh, the franchise. I didn't even sell them uh, deliberately because uh, I could have sold them, made some money. Uh, but with that, that, that would have been still the same company. We are just changing names, so selling it. I could have sold the franchise rights and so forth. I just didn't want to bother with that. Just <laughs> God, They took it back. And actually, I don't think anyone out, no one in Lexington picked up or in Louisville or someone in Louisville for a little while on the Sun Belt, I think. Um, so 2007, not, with that came, we were bracing ourselves to go more away from retail. And into bigger businesses, um, all of the uh, advisors that I would hire—they're independent contractors, which is typical in, in our industry—were um, MBAs or and had a lot of or similar. They had master's degrees, had a lot of experience, and still I had a lot of training to do with them. So I wanted top-notch people. Uh, what well, I had them, and I just wanted that's. The way I would only hire, I had an attorney uh, working for me as an M and A advisor for probably about seven years. I had a CPA uh, for probably, I think it was about nine, ten years or so. so I had some very top notch people. However, they still needed a lot of training, ongoing oversight by me to make sure that they, they were bringing value, that they were doing things properly, and so forth. So. Um, so we had big dreams at that time at a, a team, a marketing manager. I had a, um, uh, support, support people, uh, because the goal was to really grow, uh, go nationwide with, the with idea, with a concept and so forth. Um, and, uh, unfortunately divorce came. So, uh, very shockingly and, and so forth. So. And this was also, if you recall, 2008, the economy crashed. So here I was. It devastated me emotionally because I was shocked that it would never happen. So emotionally, I I was at that for about two years. I was terrible at running the company because I was just depressed. Even though I would come into work every day, uh, and I'm sharing those things because you know everyone who's running a business has issues, and yet very often, very often, not often, they have to be present in the in the company. They still have to uh, uh, manage and so forth, and uh, and it it's it's very very difficult. And on my, in my case, it was the fact too that it. The economy for uh, how many years was very bad. Our industry just virtually just just it reset. Yeah, I mean, it, for activity went down by about eighty percent. So. Wow, I mean, it was, and that lasted for several years. So, so financially, I was dev- devastated. We were not, you know, barely, you know, bringing revenue and, and so forth. So, it. Uh, it, it was a very difficult time, so uh, so after this, all that storm blew over and I got my head above the water, started rebuilding uh, the company, um, even though we branded it in 2007, but it wasn't probably until 2009 um, that I, you know, started really going back and and... Uh, growing and we set out um, uh, uh, goals uh, to to set up other. Uh, I I would have rather than franchising model, I was going to go with the licensing model around, around the country, or some of them would have been company-owned offices, and so forth. But as as I looked at life, and I had remarried, and I have a wonderful, incredible woman and three new sons. Um, I looked at life and I thought I'd love what I do, but I also realized that I was too much of a driver and I need to back off somewhat. And so through my wonderful wife, she made me understand that, you know, I could be very content with what I am doing right now and, and make a you know nice living and make people, Solve people's problems and and receive still a lot of benefit from it emotionally. So
2: that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. So that 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 led to the creation of American Fortune.
0: Yes. Uh, so uh, first we, uh, without boring the listeners, but it was Fortune business transfers and acquisitions. It lasted for about a year. Received a letter from Time. Um, uh, Inc., whatever, because they own a lot of different things, including uh, Fortune magazine and so forth. And the attorney politely said, uh, you can't use that name huh. because it's got the name Fortune. And so I used the right approach. I, I virtually befriended that attorney over time. and And I remember one time, first I was... A little tough, and I said, look, how can you do this? How can, you know, but still being professional in, in my argument. And then later on, I befriended him, and I said, I, I forget his name, but he was a real gentleman, and I said, help me. How can you help me where I could still keep the name Fortune but um, and, and change the name of the company? And I was surprised. He said, let me think about it. And then he came back and says, yes, we can work with you. So I, you know, American to me is such a special word because I'm a immigrant. Uh, I was actually born in Poland. We moved here when I was 11 years old. So America, um, especially after World War II, and I'm, I grew up under communism, America was this beacon of that all you have to do is show up here is work mm-hmm. hard and you can make much of yourself. So so the name American is, is, is so dear to me. Uh, especially Poland has always had such a love affair with uh, America. So, I, so we were looking at different names, and I thought, oh, American Fortune. And I wanted the name to be more descriptive so that because... It's it's common for uh, M and A groups or so to call themselves Cap or something, and it's like it's very generic, and uh, it doesn't even represent what they do. So I wanted a descriptive. So it's American Fortune Mergers and Acquisitions, and uh, um, that's how it, you know, it all came to be. That's that's an interesting story.
2: I. I I wonder how many people start their business and and get contacted by time saying, "Hey, you need to change your business <laughs> yes, name." Yes. That, that's that's pretty unique. That's yes. awesome.
0: Yeah, um, it was a little scary at first because I thought they're going to take us to court and all that. And shoot, uh, well, uh, I, I think you dodged that bullet. Yeah, it's it's amazing how when you, I've had cases in my life that uh, when you, um, you know, n- nothing you did wrong deliberately, but if you turn to that person's compassion and say can you help me whether in negotiations uh being at the airport and you you lost your flight or whatever rather than going out there pounding and getting me on next flight you say can you help me i i have urgent need i have a meeting and 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 be nice to them and you get very good results
2: yeah, I like so. that you said that. I I was one time reading a book in high school. I, I can't even remember which book it was, but it talked about the first way if you want to make a friend with someone, ask them for help, mm-hmm. and and that plays on what you're saying. You can it's true, you can put yourself in a better position with almost anyone by asking them for help because that kind of shows them that you look at them like, hey, you can help me, right. and then they're they're gonna want to step up to the
0: plate, you're to help. appealing to their goodness, and um, you know, with that, for instance, I've always learned. Uh, I didn't always use that term, but I learned to use the term to do the good of the other. Um, or I think there's another way of saying it. Uh, but basically, to, whatever you do, to always keep in mind first uh, that the, the other person derives good from your interaction, or from your work. But it's not putting yourself first and say in in our, in our case, okay, I'm going to make money. Uh, it's no, it's how do I help that person achieve their goals? Because I'm the expert, I've got the experience, and money is the last thing that should be considered. It's um, a side
2: effect of whatever right, right. you
0: bring to the table. If it's, it, I,
2: we we always talk about within we like to put people first because. Profit's a side effect of putting people first. If if you're giving people what they need, the, the only way they can really repay you is through money unless they can offer the same service for you. But at the end of the day, you put people first, you provide them more value than, than what you're asking for, and they're going
0: to give you value back, yeah. whether that's monetary or a right. gift. And with that, I have a kind of a personal philosophy that I always grew up with somehow. One, I had wonderful parents. The simple people, there were farmers in Poland and then factory workers in the U.S. Very honest, a lot of wisdom, especially my mom. Uh, but it, 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 you know, work ethic, excellence in everything that, that we were taught to do. So, so I, I absorbed that, and I was teachin', teaching it. To, well, they're older now teaching my children that uh, to say it, it's good enough or to say do your best that's a cop out is shoot for excellence in everything that you do and even in the small things and you'll derive a lot of joy and other people and indirectly uh, monetary uh, rewards but then people will will Trust you will rely on you because they know that if they work with you, they'll expect the, the best uh, rather than just someone who just goes through the motions and and uh, um, so that that results in my case twelve hour days uh, staying up to one o'clock one thirty meeting deadlines especially on valuations because I will not disappoint a client so. That's awesome. And I, think, I enjoy it. It's
2: I think lovely. that's a great piece of philosophy and a, a good, great story about you. We can uh, start wrapping it up. We like to end with a little blitz round. So sure. these are just quick questions. And the first one is, what book has had the biggest impact on
0: your career? Well, I to make sure I, I wasn't stumbling and trying to remember names, I brought a list. And so I, it, it was a difficult decision. So it, it was um, actually... Um, Let's see how many five books, and I'll just very quickly name them because Perfect. some of the readers or listeners may uh, uh, may have read them and enjoy them. So, uh, good to great and built to last, both written by Jim Collins. Uh, wonderful. It's been a while since I read them. So, if you would ask me what particular things uh, I would say, I just used it in my life and you're seeing the product of of some of the things that that the um, book uh, wrote about. Uh, And then the E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Uh, It's still, I hope it's it's still in print. Uh, That was uh, the E-Myth first and then the, uh, I think they call it Revisited, the E-Myth Revisited, but also very good books for, for people in business. Uh, or, or or just life. Um, and then the other one is Blue Ocean Strategy uh, by Chan Kim. Yeah, I've heard And of that. that one, I, I even that one I read, geez, it's been probably now 12 years ago. I, I think at some point, I used to read a lot, at some point, you start reading something, and it's like, oh, I, I, I kind of know this. And, and not to be cocky, but life teaches you a lot, and and when you start practicing a lot of things that you've learned. So that one goes kind of deep into the ideology, the the, the psyche of the person. I mean, not directly, but it it really is not a dry book. You have to kind of immerse yourself in this. It's almost like building a culture in your mind and, and how you work with clients and so forth. So, so it's a, a very uh, deep book uh, that, that, you know, through that it's, it's got the word strategy. In other words, um, when, you, when you strategize, you, you dip into all the senses and you have to know people and psychology and sociology to see how your product your service uh can can be useful to to people in the world um so it's yeah it's, it's a very interesting book first when i started reading it was like where are we going with this because <laughs> it seemed like but uh, soon very quickly I, I started to connect the dots
2: yeah that's great i'll have to check the emith and then the blue ocean we, we got, got the e-myth on the ah, okay yeah. awesome The next question is, what was your dream job as a child? Uh, You mean what I wanted to be when I grew up? For me, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a little kid.
0: Uh, All I knew is I wanted to help people. So it it was a doctor or or in medical field. Uh, And because I always, and then growing up, I was kind of, Nicknamed the Doc for the family because I was reading a lot. This is like in elementary school and high school. I would read a lot about medicine and you know supplements and uh, stayed away from those who were making all these claims. But real studies on on uh, supplements and vitamins and food and so forth, and as well as you know general health and so forth. So um, so it was it, you know it was going to be a doctor. Unfortunately, with, you know, we were poor immigrants coming into the U.S. And back then, there was no help. Because even, even if there were, my parents would not have taken any welfare, any food stamps. Uh, it was a matter of, of no, I all I want to do is work. And, and I'll, you know, so all of us went to work. Uh, even at age 11, cutting lawns. Uh, Painting homes in the winter, we couldn't wait till it snowed. We ran out and shoveled snow and make some money. Um, So the school system, we lived in the Detroit part of, you know, area, not in the suburbs. School systems were not the greatest. Uh, Language, we didn't know the language, so learning of the language. I, I didn't understand how language, how learning language, properly is so critical to one's advancement in schools and affecting their career. Uh, until my wife, my current wife, a teacher, she was working with students who came from other countries, uh, uh, English is a second language. So some of them were, spoke English very well. They still didn't know the language or how to write. And so, in our case, and, and everyone at that time coming in as immigrants, we were thrown into the classrooms, and you figured out for yourself. Uh, there was no teaching uh, after school. I mean, it, was, it was horrible when you look back. So you learned to speak uh, grammar. It was I, I kind of pieced grammar together in college here and there because when they were talking about uh, uh, nouns and pronouns and verbs and adverbs, I was trying to understand language, let alone try to understand what the heck, how does it apply? So, um, so because of that, my, my dream, and even the money, I mean, it, it cost money to, to go, and scholarships before were not that available like they are, or financial aid like it is today. So but that's okay because um, I, I turned in a different direction because there was a part of me that I mentioned before that I was a, from anything mechanical, electronics, uh, um, just I, I loved all of those kind of things. I, I, I told my wife that I, I would want to eat transistors and resistors for, for dinner or so. <laughs> Back then, the... the um, uh, components now it's surface mount so they look different but uh, less
2: appetizing yes <laughs> <laughs>
0: I guess. but it was just uh, and I would build things read a lot and then fix things so uh, so all of the basis for going to engineering made a lot of sense but then I realized that I would not have been happy as an engineer because I would have been working on projects because later on I had engineers working for me and I'm thinking you have one lousy project and you're so burnt out you've got to be kidding me I, and so I, I would that would have just just really uh, not fit me because uh, yeah. I, I wanted the big picture I wanted to be um, broader and, and and everything so
2: I can relate to that I, I thought I was going the engineering route and then quickly through calculus and realizing you can't be creative with your math equations as much as you want to be creative with your inventions. I was like, Oh, not for me. Right. It just doesn't work. And then our last question is if business meetings had intro songs, what would yours be? And picture, you know, when a NBA player comes out on the court, they got that intro song. What would yours
0: be? Oh yes. I mean, that was like, duh. <laughs> it's, it's. And um, I like classical music. Awesome. I like all kinds of music except, Rap and all (laughs) those, but uh, you know, I grew up. I was born in 1955, so the all the oldies from me, from the even from the 50s, but especially 60s and 70s, the when music was really written from a poetic perspective, Mm -hmm. the uh, musicians uh, uh, received formal uh, education very often in music. They had music degrees and so forth. So, so music was was you know my opinion much better than a lot of the shallow things that that are written there's still a lot of good things written today but but anyway on that note it would be Ode to Joy by, by Beethoven so that wow. that's awesome well, that's That that because, might be one
2: of our best that we've had yet yes
0: because it comes out with a bang yes and um there's joy in life there's everything that we do can be you can find joy in in whether and like I said, it's all about serving others around you. There was duty, and duty became joy. Uh, um, some famous poet, in one of his lines, wrote that. And uh, so, whether it be you know sacrifice or hard work or you know being in a job that seems monotonous, uh, we we should find some joy because what we do has an impact on everyone around us and, and in the world you know our our little everydayness uh serve the world and and uh, so so yeah absolutely Oh, to joy! that's awesome we like that well and i want that as my I, my wife says you're not going anywhere yet uh for my um funeral uh to be played in in church so it's a beautiful song yeah, so well, it's, it's been great, yeah. Brian. We really yeah. appreciate Brian's your time, been, and um, been, we're excited to get this out to our listeners. It's been a pleasure meeting uh, all of you three, and I, I wish you very well in your endeavors, and uh, and with this endeavor as well. So, thank you, thank all you. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. been great. Awesome. Right.
1: Hey guys, it's Cal here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the How to Business Show. If you would like to stay up to date with upcoming episodes and what we're doing behind the scenes, make sure to follow us on social media. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and our website, www.htbshow.com. Finally, if you have a story to share or some feedback for the show, feel free to contact us at HTBS at Gillizanteam.com. Important links for today's episode can be found in the description. From all of us on the How To Business team, thank you for listening and see you next time.